So, Jay, how did Logan get his adamantium back after Fatal Attractions, anyway? Well, Miles, Apocalypse turned him into the Horseman of Death. Ah, poor Logan. How'd Apocalypse manage to scoop him up, anyway? Trap? Baked death? Oh, he, he didn't. What do you mean? Logan volunteered. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 357 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And we are finally, for real, we promise this time, here. This is the actual last final episode of Onslaught. Till he comes back. Well, until he comes back, but that isn't for, like, a really long time. Right, so we are going to be looking at the various Onslaught epilogues tonight. And before we do that, I guess we should give, you know, the very, very, very brief synopsis of what's happened previously, which is basically that Professor Xavier's dark side manifested as a giant, omnipotent monster named Onslaught, and to defeat it, most of Earth's most prominent non-mutant heroes sacrificed their lives on national television in a way that made it look very much like it was the X-Men's fault, which, in fact, it kind of was if you count Professor Xavier as one of the X-Men. Yeah, yeah, that's actually all we really need to know. All the ins, outs, and what-have-yous of the nature of Onslaught— that doesn't really matter right now. The point is, Onslaught is gone, Xavier is still around, the heroes, other than the X-Men, are gone, and humanity at large is very upset with mutants. Hey, Spider-Man's still around. Oh, that's true. Uh, multiple Spider-Men, in fact. But not Spider-Man. Right, Spider-Man won't show up for a long time. Well, and he's from a different universe. Yeah, so all of those things. But anyway, yeah, so Onslaught is... Kinda sorta done. Like, the Onslaught event itself is pretty much over. What we're gonna have to talk about this episode are a couple of follow-up issues of X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, and a book called simply Onslaught Epilogue, which is kind of that. Yeah, it doesn't actually have much to do with Onslaught. But it does have a lot to do with the two X-Men issues we're gonna be talking about, so we threw it in anyway, even though it also wasn't published for a few months after. Well, and it claims to be the epilogue of Onslaught, and examining and evaluating those claims is, I would say, part of our job as experts who explain the X-Men. Indeed, it X is. So, I guess let's let's dive into to the final stretch with Uncanny X-Men number 337. This issue is called Know Thy Enemy, and is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend and Vince Russell, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Sarkinson Comicraft and Colia Fuchs. Let's start with this cover. I love this cover. It's an image of Xavier and the X-Men happily posing for a picture, but it's sort of underwater, and there are these ripples coming outward, like raindrops are dropping on it, and it just has this wonderful sense of melancholy, of loss of something having been impermanent and now being forever changed. It's hard to explain why that image evokes that feel, but it really does. And I feel like that has to be deliberate because that's what this story does too. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful cover. Mm, well done. So speaking of rain, we start in a rainstorm. 
We start in a rainstorm with a shirtless Logan. Now, remember, we did find out that Logan loves being hosed down by firemen, so I can only assume this is scratching that same itch. But he is talking to Professor Xavier. Also in the rain, may or may not have anything to do with firemen. Xavier's feeling pretty bad about himself and pretty bad about everything that has gone down. And Logan is is doing his his Wolverine best to give Xavier a pep talk, but Xavier will have absolutely none of it. And as they talk, speaking of beautiful art, it cuts to the title page, which is the two of them on the broken edge of what's left of one of the wings of the X-Mansion. Because remember, when Onslaught attacked, the X-Mansion was not destroyed, but pretty badly banged up. One of the wings is almost gone. And we see the credits of the issue written on the shattered walls and beams of the part of the mansion that was essentially just exploded or torn off of the rest. I am a big fan of good title pages. I am a big fan of finding a way to have your credits feel like part of the art on the title page. And this issue does it really well. The credits really feel like last issue credits to me. They've, they've just got that sense of, of finality and again of melancholy. As you may be gathering, listeners, despite our mixed feelings about the Onslaught event itself, there's some pretty good stuff we're going to be talking about this time. Well, there was some pretty good stuff in the Onslaught event itself. It just wasn't consistent. And, you know, let's actually take a minute and talk about that. Because some listeners have pointed out, a a number of listeners, that as much as we talk about not liking Onslaught the event, we seem to mostly have positive things to say about its contents. And... You know, that's kind of true. So, I have very mixed feelings about that. I I look at Onslaught the event, and what I see is good stuff jumbled into a mess. I think that it's an event that starts off very strong, and then very quickly suffers from lack of internal consistency and from event bloat. The, the stuff that's good in it is very good, and I don't want to diminish that, but I don't think it's a success overall as an event. Yeah, I think I'm kind of on the same page there. I mean, as much as going through Onslaught again has made me like it more, as is often the case with stuff we cover on the show, I think part of it for me is having read the Road to Onslaught one-shot with the supposed Onslaught design documents. Like, that paints the picture of a crossover that would have made much more sense, of a villain who would have been much more interesting because he would have had a coherent plan. And so the fact that we knew that there were people who had come up with some pretty good ideas for Onslaught, the event, and that those ideas weren't used, and so Onslaught just ended up this extremely simplistic villain with a bunch of contradictions within his actions— That's frustrating. Like, I almost wish that Road to Onslaught hadn't come out if this was the plot we were going to get, because then I wouldn't have anything to compare this to. Yeah, there's a certain degree of narrative coherence and quality and of character quality that I expect from a villain built up to be this large in a crossover built up to be this large. And Onslaught really fails to deliver on that. And it's unfortunate because the potential is there. The premise of Xavier's frustration manifesting as a great big monster and then the great big monster freeing itself once Xavier was physically pulled out of it, like, that's legitimately awesome. 
yeah, there's a lot that could have been done with that and wasn't. Ah, uh, well, at least he'll come back in uh, some Sysburrier stuff from pretty recently that was super interesting, so there's that. Hey. Anyway, back in the actual Onslaught epilogue slash aftermath, Logan and Xavier continue to talk. Logan points out, hey, I really get struggling with inner demons, and you've done a lot more good than harm. But Xavier doesn't buy it. Logan, do not try to equate your pain to my own. You wrestle a beast within you. A noble effort, to be sure, but in the large scheme of things, no different than what many of us face day to day. I possess, possessed, the power to read minds, to wipe them clean if I chose. I could command them to do that which I wished. Don't seek to trivialize my experience by comparing it with your own. Huh. <laughs> Nice try, Chuck. But I ain't rising for the bait. I thought I was the original king of pushing people away. Even without your mental powers, you're good at head games, ain't you? You have no idea. But Logan keeps trying. He mentions that, hey, he never had any intention of depending on people or working with people. But he stayed with the X-Men anyway. And that was for one reason. For one person. Charles Xavier. Me and a lot of other people, Chuck. We hate to think you just pulled one over on us. So the Xavier Mansion isn't the only location that Onslaught has reduced to rubble. In Central Park, in the remains of, of Onslaught's you know, tower, Bastion, now in his, his sort of fancy futuristic business suit with pink and gold accents, stands and looks out over Central Park and then heads back to his base where they are reverse-engineering wrecked Sentinels. And one thing that's interesting here is that Bastion and his team look at the Sentinels and describe them as antiquated, because we'll find out that Bastion is a mix of Master Mold and Nimrod, the former of whom is a super-advanced Sentinel, and the latter of whom is a Sentinel from a fair bit into the future and way more advanced. So nice little bit of foreshadowing here. Back in Central Park, though, Graydon Creed is busy doing what he does best, which is rustling up anti-mutant sentiment in the light of recent events. He's standing in one of the craters um, talking about mutants killing humanity's heroes as the last straw. Oh yeah, all of this is so good for anti-mutant bigot Graydon Creed's presidential campaign. Like, this is just uh, grist for the mill? Is that the phrase? I don't know what grist means. Yeah, this, that's the phrase. What does grist mean? Listeners, if you are a grist, please let me know what that thing is. Yeah, so, Miles, um, I, I know what grist is. Oh, you're a grist expert? A gristologist? No, but it's it's the grain that's ground in the mill to, to make flour. Oh, I, I was expecting something more elaborate. But you know what? The truth is what the truth is. Anyway, point being, Graydon Creed is being a total dick about this. And the news is covering him, as it has done from the start of his campaign, including photographer Peter Parker gritting his teeth as he takes pictures of this guy. Interestingly enough, video of this is being watched by another Daily Bugle employee, that being J. Jonah Jameson. He's actually watching it on Fox News, which is kind of rare to have, like, specific news stations on here uh, in the Marvel Universe. But uh, I guess that would be the one who would be sympathetically covering Graydon Creed. 
The man sells papers, Robbie. You have to give him that. To which Robbie Robertson replies, The man's a politician. He'll say anything to get elected, and he's saying it to the lowest common denominator. He's speaking to our fear, our paranoia of anything that's different. But Jonah thinks there's something more to this guy that he's worth investigating, really, really looking into. All right, we get more J. Jonah Jameson and more Peter Parker. Was this issue listening to our last episode where we talked about how much we enjoy when spider stuff crosses over with X-Men? Sounds like. Excellent. Speaking of characters we like, with a zacked back at the mansion, Cyclops zaps the alarm radio, which is broadcasting that speech. Now, our younger listeners may not know that people used to use things other than cell phones to wake up. There were alarm clocks, and they would have radios built in, and so when it was time to get up for the time that you'd set, it would start playing the radio on whatever station you had it on. I don't know why Cyclops is waking up to the news. That sounds horrifyingly stressful, and he's already very high-strung. Oh, I I used to set it to set set my clock to NPR. Well, I guess with NPR, you get to hear about how the world is terrible, but, like, it's in very soothing voices with clear enunciation. Exactly. Okay, well, I'm into that. Uh, So, Psych brushes the dust that is all that's left of the alarm radio into the dresser drawer, hoping Gene won't notice. We also get a a window into what this era's Cyclops um, wears by way of of sleep shades, um, which which varies throughout the years. And at this point, apparently, it is it is a pair of goggles with very very small ruby quartz lenses. You know that makes so much sense. Like if Cyclops' glasses slip even a little, he's going to zack the hell out of whatever's in front of him, possibly Jean. And so having some glasses that are in goggle form and won't come off when he like shifts in his sleep—that's a great idea. How did he sleep before then? That seems dangerous. Well, we've seen him, at least during the Mutant Revolution era, with just, like, a sleep mask. Sleep shade. Okay. Which presumably holds his eyes closed, and its, you know, presence when he wakes up is enough to remind him not to immediately open them. But the goggles have the advantage that they, they you know, let him see. I don't understand why they're mostly covered. I guess it only lets a little bit of light in when it's nighttime, and so that means it wouldn't wake him up too much when light got in, and it wouldn't mess up his circadian rhythms by screwing up his suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's been a long time since psychology. I think I got that right. But it's not like he has his eyes open when he's sleeping. Well, right, but like if he has to get up to pee or something. But the the red would do that anyway. Oh, that's true, yeah, because the visual purple thing. Well... Anyway, point being, I think what we should really talk about is the fact that when he goes into the bathroom to get ready for the day, we see his standard red shades in this, like, glass of green bubbly liquid, like there is his freaking dentures or something. Yeah, that's weird. Is Okay, I was gonna ask, like, you know more about Cyclops than me, and you wear glasses and I don't, and so the fact that that's weird to both of us makes me think that's just straight up weird. The closest I have ever come to that was keeping my glasses in a glasses case while I slept because the cat would stand on them otherwise. But that glasses case was not full of bubbly green liquid like it was from Dr. Frankenstein's lab. Not that I know of. I feel like that's the sort of thing you would notice. It seems like, yeah. All, all I can guess is that it's it's some means of, I, I don't know, that it has something to do with the mysterious and absolutely not real world scientific principles of, of the particular type of ruby quartz that's used for his glasses and... Yeah, it it cleans them off or it gives them some, it replenishes some kind of protective coating or it diffuses the energy they've absorbed over the day or something. 
Okay. Well, you know, hearing you talk about it that way, like, as I recall, wasn't it Mr. Sinister who secretly supplied Scott with his first Ruby Quartz lenses to control his power? It was, yeah. And we know that Mr. Sinister is the type of mad scientist that does love his bubbly green liquid. I suppose that's true. Yeah, well, there you go. Anyway, uh, Scott's not the first person to come into the bathroom, I, I guess. Yeah, for some reason, Hank is just hanging out fully clothed in the shower behind the shower curtain reading a newspaper. Well, I mean, fully clothed for Hank. He's wearing his little beast underwear thing. Yeah, that's, that's about as clothed as Hank gets. Uh, yeah, and so Cyclops zacks him. Okay, in, in panic, not, af- not, not, not just like out of, out of, out of, you know annoyance that hank is for some fucking reason standing in the shower reading the newspaper but but in in oh god someone just did something abruptly in a bathroom where i thought i was alone not uh, fair but zacked i thought it was zark no um so cyclops doesn't actually have a single consistent sound effect you see zacked you see zapped you see zark it's usually some variation on z a something or consonant consonant but it okay. varies pretty pretty significantly Oh, well, before you got so specific, I thought maybe it was just any sound effect that started with Z, so it could be Zowie. No. Damn it. Well, Scott helps Free Beast from the bathtub that he knocked him into, and this is Hank McCoy. Generally speaking, whether he's happy or not, he comes off as pretty jovial. You did it, Scott. I'm free. Free. God, I love that word. A Google thank yous. Because, of course, until recently, Beast was cask of Amontillado'd behind a brick wall by Dark Beast. But this is interesting, because Beast said, Google. In 2021, we all know what Google means. It's the name of a search engine, and it's spelled G-O-O-G-L-E. And that's the way it's spelled here. But here's the thing. This came out, like, a year before Google.com was registered, before that company was known by anyone, and before their misspelled name had been come up with by one of the grad students who were working with the founders. It should be G-O-O-G-O-L, which is short for Googleplex, which is a one with a million zeros. It's a very large number. So I was thinking about this, and what I came up with was maybe that grad student who initially did misspell Google, and then the founders liked that misspelling and decided to make that their company name, maybe that grad student was an X-Men reader and had read this specific issue. I suspect it's a pretty common misspelling. I just like thinking that people responsible for things that end up being important were influenced by X-Men. I know you do. Well, anyway, uh, Iceman shows up and freezes the floor so that Scott and Hank both fall over, and then it's another Zacked. Oh, these scamps. Yep, those wacky kids. Speaking of the original five X-Men, Jean Grey is making breakfast in the house that she shares with Scott and doing her best to comfort Quicksilver because he's been staying with him. Remember, he just lost his wife and his sister to Onslaught, and he's been crashing with Scott and Jean since then. And this is interesting to me because I don't think Quicksilver's ever been particularly close to Scott and Jean, and yet this feels really right to me. Yeah, agreed. Like, I know that Wanda and Jean were friends canonically, but I don't think that was really established until way later in stories that were written about the Silver Age. Like, was it Colleen Coover who wrote those Jean Grey stories where she and Wanda hung out and it was uh, great? She drew them. Oh, okay, gotcha. Well, they were awesome is the point. They were. Those were delightful. Those were the backup stories from X-Men First Class. Which is also delightful. 
So Quicksilver, as one of the heroes actually staying in Earth-616 and not getting pulled into Heroes Reborn, I hadn't realized, but he's going to have his own series around this time. It doesn't last for that long, but he's going to headline a series. Specifically, he is going to lead the Knights of Vundagor, you know, like those animal people that the High Evolutionary made. Good for him. Did, did the Knights of Vundagor ever meet the Animen who were created by Count Nefaria? I feel like they would have a lot to talk about. They might well. Anyway, everyone eventually does come in for breakfast, including Gambit, who is excited that the fact that it's raining means his trench coat is actually coming in handy. I love that. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good throwaway line. Rogue is not there. She has taken Joseph, who's still uncomfortable hanging out with the X-Men, out to breakfast. Joseph, of course, being the de-aged amnesiac version of Magneto, who recently showed up and started hanging out with the X-Men. Yes, yes, we know he'll later be revealed to be a clone, but we don't know that yet. The point is, Rogue's been hanging out with him, is kind of sweet on him, and Gambit's jealous. Cannonball has also skipped the breakfast because he's concerned that Magneto, or Joseph, is going to be there. Which makes a lot of sense. I really like that Lobdell remembers this, that Cannonball and most of his New Mutant contemporaries really dislike Magneto. Like, he was their headmaster, things went badly, and then, from what they knew, he totally betrayed them to start hanging out with the Hellfire Club and doing evil things. It was actually more complicated than that, but the New Mutants were teenagers, and, you know, they were easily angered. Well, and he didn't tell them a lot of kind of critical stuff. Oh yeah, Magneto is by no means blameless. Who else is missing is Xavier. Logan comes in, dripping and shirtless, of course, to say that, hey... He tried. And the X-Men have their last kind of almost normal feeling morning in the wake of Onslaught. Cyclops zacks a pancake that Iceman froze and Gambit then threw out the window. And it's, it's sweet. Like, they're a family. And I think that also serves very well to highlight what Xavier doesn't feel like he is allowed to come back to, what he deserves to come back to. You really, really feel his absence. He's supposed to be a part of this family. That brings us to X-Men number 57, Man. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Art T. Bear, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And let's start with this cover. We have mentioned this homage many of the times it's come up, but this is another one. This is Professor Xavier sadly hover-chairing away from some sad-looking X-Men with a white background. That is originally, of course, the cover to Uncanny X-Men number 138, featuring Cyclops, later used for Uncanny X-Men 151 with Kitty, New Mutants 99 with Sunspot, X-Force 44 with Cannonball, Wolverine number 65 with Wolverine, Uncanny X-Men 381 with Jubilee, X-Men 57, um, that's this issue with Xavier, uh, J- uh, Gen X number 1 with the whole team, and Ultimate X-Men number 80 with, again, Wolverine. And a bunch of other non-X-Men and non-Marvel comics as well. We're right back with Xavier. This arc's all about him. He is scanning for himself to locate himself with Cerebro, and yeah, he doesn't exist. As you may recall, Cerebro during this era doesn't require a telepath to operate it. It's, it's entirely um, electronic. Yeah, you or I could operate it. If we were fictional and existed in that universe and had access to it, I suppose we could. A duck could operate it. Well, a very specific duck, perhaps. Oh yeah, well, we'll get to him. Anyway, he voice authenticates and erases all files about himself, and not just in the Xavier Institute's computers, but 
in Muir Isle in the Massachusetts Academy in the Mutant Underground. He does a pseudo RM-RF Xavier. I mean, assuming Xavier was a directory in the current. Anyway, I'm not going to get too Linuxy about this. The point is, goddamn, that is a statement. Well, I'm guessing that it's something he feels he's going to need to do based on what's going to happen shortly after. There is that. But he continues feeling guilty for betraying the trust of the X-Teams and for everything he did, or Onslaught did, as he moves through the broken mansion and looks at a shattered picture of himself with the original five X-Men. I do love that narrative shorthand, like, do you want to be regretful about something? Look at a framed picture with the glass shattered of that thing. Yep. So... Years ago, I, I have the, I have this framed photo of of me and and Tina and Max, that um the three of us at at Pride one year, that that Tina took the selfie, and then saw and was like, okay, we have to get this framed because this has to be our kidnap montage photo, because you know how um in in montages when someone like dies or is kidnapped or something, there's always a montage and there's always like that specific group group picture. <laughs> this makes sense. Tina knows more about television tropes than most people I know. Yeah, you gotta have the kidnap montage photo. I, I, you know, I'm glad you guys are prepared for that eventuality, which I hope uh, doesn't happen. The doorbell rings, and Cyclops answers, and it's Val Cooper. And I appreciate that the first thing Cyclops asks about is, oh, did you find my brother? Because, of course, over an X-Factor, Havoc is brainwashed and missing. And the answer is no. In fact, she's here from the government to take Professor X away. And the X-Men gather around her as they realize what's going on, and most of them are there to object. With one exception, Storm actually agrees with Val. How else can we assuage her justifiable concern that something like Onslaught will never happen again? Jean and Iceman are likewise concerned. Jean is worried about him being able to really know which parts are him and which are Onslaught's somewhere that she's she's been. Right, with Phoenix. And Iceman worries, you know, what if it happens again? Val Cooper, a master of many things, is also a master of flipping channels to make her point. And she turns on the television, where we see, as she changes from one channel to the next, a thing that people did before streaming, a shattered Brooklyn Bridge. Braden Creed giving a speech, a candlelight vigil for the fallen heroes, a bouquet left at the Fantastic Four's headquarters. This is a world, and especially in Manhattan, that has been shattered by what happened because of Onslaught, and thus because of Xavier. And they they all debate. Like, no one can really come to a consensus here. You know, Cyclops points out that Xavier's good far outweighs Onslaught. Quicksilver points out that that really doesn't actually erase the damage. But Logan makes it simple. Xavier only leaves over his dead body. When there's a voice from off-panel. And have I suddenly become so old and infirm that I have no say in any of this? Xavier says, hey, he created the X-Men to protect the world from mutant threats. But the X-Men are standing by him, who is a mutant threat. And Joseph, you know, the former Magneto, kind of, for his part, doesn't know how to feel about being left blameless himself, because as we know, it was the psychic hate goblin from inside Magneto that triggered the ability for Onslaught to exist within Xavier. But of course, Joseph has no memory of any of that, or of any of what Magneto did. We'll find out later that that's because he's a clone, but for now, we just think his mind's wiped. 
And Xavier tells the X-Men that he's immensely proud of all of them, but he owes the fallen heroes and the world accountability, and he leaves with Val, and he's going to be gone for a pretty long time. Yeah, like a couple of years, to the point where the next major time we see him will be in a story called The Hunt for Xavier. And I like this. Kind of like when Xavier disappeared for a long time into space at the end of Uncanny number 200, it's always interesting to see what the X-Men do when they don't have their nigh-infallible, always well-intentioned, very competent leader, what the X-Men do on their own. Yeah. But as all of this is happening, we have subplots. And the first of those is about Beast. He's hanging out in the not-exploded parts of Central Park with an image inducer active, so looking, you know, not blue and furry, enjoying his freedom, at least enjoying it until he sees a mom scolding her kid for chasing that kid's friends while pretending to be Mutalo, Lord of the Mutants. I initially misread that as uh, Metoxo. I mean, tis the season, I guess. So he's, he's only metaphorically blue. Metoxophorically. I stand by that. Anyway, Trish Tilby meets up with him, uh, who is dark-haired again after her, her flirtation with blondness during Onslaught, and he gives her a rose. Remember, the last time they saw each other, he was furious at her for breaking the story to the public that the legacy virus was now affecting humans, and thus inflaming anti-mutant hysteria further. Beast explains himself. Being a mutant, for better or worse, that's fate, a given. Being an X-Man doing my part to save the world. It's not always fun, but it's important. I'm even good at it. But being a man, knowing when to say I was wrong, when to say I'm sorry, when to say I love you, those are things I need to practice. Aww. This this feels very early X-Factor to me. I mean, the Hank-Trish romance angle, this level of soap opera-ness, even Beast being visibly in his non-furry form. Like, it's a nice little memory lane trip. Beast and Trish Tilby, I'm, I'm neutral on them, but this is sweet. Psylocke, meanwhile, heads back to Archangel's fancy Soho loft and discovers that he is gone but has left a pile of metal flechettes on the ground. Hey, hey, Warren, I clean out the shower drain for my long hair. Like, I know I'm going to shed, and I deal with it. Come on, dude. But that's not all. There's also, among them, a white feather. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that real soon, um, in a plot twist that I'm excited to talk about because I have feelings. Uh, but that's all we get. What we get even more of, though, is J. Jonah Jameson, who's meeting Bastion for lunch. Bastion wants JJJ to stop investigating Creed. He is watching JJJ. Or so he claims, because it, it's clear that he has he has another agenda too, and that this meal goes about as Bastion planned for it. But I do love this. Like, as Bastion's being all threatening, saying he knows things about Jameson, JJJ just throws his wallet at Bastion. Here! Learn the rest, yutz! I have apparently misjudged you, Mr. Jameson. You are clearly a man who stands behind his convictions. My apologies. Just... just so we're clear, Bastion. After I expose Creed, I'm coming after you and your Operation Zero Tolerance. Okay, this is two issues in a row where we get JJJ being a ton of fun. Um, dear 90s X-Men, please have included a small JJJ scene in every single issue ever. Thank you. Love, Miles. 
And that brings us to Onslaught Epilogue Number 1, Prisoner M13, written by Larry Hama, penciled by Randy Green, inked by John Holleridge and Hilary Barda, colored by Dana Morshead, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So Larry Hama is always a good sign as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah, no, Hama's so much fun. Like, even mediocre Larry Hama is still highly entertaining. So this issue came out a few months after Onslaught, but it ties in so nicely with what we're looking at, and it's technically the epilogue to Onslaught, so we decided to just throw it in today. Exactly. Now, imprisonment is not going particularly well for Charles Xavier, who has, you know, as you recall, turned himself in. Instead of whatever he was expecting, he's stuck in an abandoned Hulkbuster base under the control of Bastion and his multinational anti-mutant task force, and it is not a good time. And I think this is our first look at Operation Zero Tolerance as an operation that really gets across just how powerful and overwhelming it all is. It's it's not just the size of the base or the quantity of the people, although those are conveyed very well by Randy Green's art. It's actually... For me, specifically the fact that there are at least two different uniform colors for scientists and three different uniform colors for soldiers, like, this is that complex and multifaceted of a megacorporation of organized hate. It's a nice little detail. I don't know if it was intended to imply anything, but for me, that is what sells it. Yeah, it's a really good detail, and you're absolutely right about the scope of it being fairly evident. So Xavier, for his part, is mostly in solitary confinement. He's labeled Prisoner M13 with a bonus anti-sci field to keep any telepaths from contacting him or him from messaging out, even if he could, which he, of course, can't right now. And let's talk about that label, because that is on the front of an orange jumpsuit that he's wearing. And you're thinking, like, oh, orange jumpsuit, he's a prisoner, okay. But on the back of that jumpsuit is a great big letter M, which is exactly what we saw on the backs of the green jumpsuits worn by the mutant prisoners of the concentration camps of the Days of Future Past Future. Oh, damn. That is a nice... Yeah, isn't it such a nice little subtle, like, call... I guess call forward more than call back? Well, it's a callback to a previous issue which takes place in the future. Comics. Within the context of the issue, it's a callback. And Bastion has been attempting to interrogate Xavier, mostly unsuccessfully, so he's called in an expert, a Dr. Ingrid Thyssen, who's a clinical psychologist and who is going to do an evaluation and profile. She's not there alone, so traveling with Dr. Thyssen is special operative Daryl Smith, who was briefly a Wolverine character and who is apparently, we'll find out later in this issue, immune to telepathy. Who is also here is Henry Peter Gyrick. I remember that guy. And he is he is here kind of in his original form, which is to be the, the voice of slightly cranky reason, yeah, true to his OG Walter Peck roots. This is how you make your bad guy seem very obviously bad. You put Henry Peter Gyrick next to him, like famed, cranky, sort of anti-mutant, sort of anti-superhuman control freak, and you make Gyrick look like the good cop. And these cops are overseeing more than one prisoner, um, because there there is at least one other there, and that is prisoner M9, an adorable moppet named Nina. Nina was apparently created in something called the Manite Project, so she's she's not a standard mutant. And this project is not going to be developed particularly well, um, but will eventually be tied loosely into Adam Warren's Livewire series. And it's pretty clear that Nina is not your standard human, whether she's a mutant or anything else. Like, her eyes are very, very large, and she doesn't have visible pupils. She's got, like, a little thing on her forehead, like a crystal. Her skin's sort of pinkish. She has a, a, a 
tiny nose, even by standards of comics in the 90s. Oh, that might mean that she is devolving into a more bestial form. That was what it was with Logan. It's entirely possible. Um, But having replaced the security feed with the kids' cartoon Rainbow Bears, Nina and her plush bunny Harry show up in Professor Xavier's cell as he's recovering from a beating at the hands of Bastion. Okay, let's talk about the Rainbow Bears thing, because that's the TV show that's continually pumped into Nina's cell to sort of keep her distracted and docile. And I just love the reaction when everybody first sees that this, like, brightly colored kids cartoon has replaced the security feed. Bastion demands, What's that on the monitors? Bison replies, They're they're called the Rainbow Bears. It just reminds me of that X-Men the Animated Series thing from, like, the first arc, where uh, Gambit leaves an explodey card on the ground, and and one of the Sentinels is like, what's that? And the other is like, it appears to be the Ace of Spades. The Rainbow Bears do not explode. Um, And it turns out that in addition to some telepathy and empathy, Nina is telekinetic, and she can also teleport and walk through walls. She's a little bit confusing, but she knows what she's about. So, Xavier asks... Where did you come from, Nina? How did you get here? Always been here. Tuesday said we got found under cabbage leaves by the Project Elf. Funny, huh? Does Bastion know you can move things with your mind, child? Oh no. Tuesday told me to never let on to them what I can do. Tuesday teach me how to slide, you know? Why are you showing me what you can do? You're not like them, mister. They hurt people. I... I've hurt people too, Nina. But they're not sorry. Dr. Thyssen, for her part, isn't exactly friendly, but she seems generally more humane than Bastion and company, and she's also clearly unaware of Xavier's larger context or relationship to Onslaught. Okay, but before we get to any of that plot stuff, let's talk about her outfit. Like, before she was wearing, and admittedly surprisingly revealing for a random psychologist, like, a power suit, you know, like a Dana Scully kind of look. And now she's wearing this skin-tight, strappy, armored purple and yellow thing. It makes her look like she's on freaking X-Force. Like, alright, Jay... If I had known that you got to dress like that once you got to be a certain level of psychologist, I absolutely would have continued on to grad school. Well, not only that, but she's got a hover bike. Oh yeah, later she gets on a goddamn hover bike to get across the facility. Psychology is awesome. While Dr. Thyssen is doing her thing, Bastion concludes that M9, that's Nina, is too dangerous to be allowed to reach puberty and should be killed. And he and he and Gyrick decide that Daryl Smith is the man for the job. But first, we get another Nina and Charles visit in which we learn a few critical things. Namely, Nina cannot read Bastion's mind. She can, however, read Henry Peter Gyrick's mind, and he's very upset. And Professor X's powers are still there. They're just turned off. And Nina offers to turn them back on, but Xavier demurs. She is actually eventually going to turn his powers back on, numb somewhat far out in the future. She also manages to manifest a Rainbow Bear's phone for him, which he uses to call someone named Renee Makeham. So, Renee, is it Makeham? Mashcom? I don't know. It's M-A-J-C-O-M-B, which I think is pronounced Makeham. Okay, well, anyway, we've seen her before, right? Right, um, she was the leader of a bipartisan rebel battalion during the Genosian Revolution, And she later showed up in the Cable Solo series researching the legacy virus. 
She also has some pretty sweet facial tattoos. She does, yeah. And with the security monitors once again replaced by rainbow bears, Thyssen and Smith head to Xavier's cell to investigate. Nina shows up and says they can trust Thyssen. Thyssen's thoughts aren't scary. And it's also through Nina's Nina's powers that they find out that the plan is is to kill Nina. So um, with, with Thyssen's collaboration, Xavier breaks out on the fancy glider as a distraction while Thyssen and Nina attempt to flee. Thyssen wants Nina to slide to the surface. It's her, her word for sort of the phasing she does. But Nina has no idea what the surface is. She's never been anywhere but underground. Right. The implication is that she was actually created here, that she was like a test tube baby of some sort amid all this mad science. Right. And they are, at that point, intercepted by Daryl Smith, who, from what we can tell, punches out Dr. Thyssen and takes Nina away and kills her. Xavier is captured as well, and Smith goes and disposes of Nina's body. Or so, at least, we are led to believe. Here's what actually happened. Nina recognized Daryl Smith as maybe a fellow Manite, maybe a mutant, Maybe just not a jerk? It's unclear. He punched Thyssen to make the whole scene look a little bit better, and then taught Nina how to use her powers to fake death so he could get her past Bastion and company. And after all this finishes, she calls up Professor Xavier on the Rainbow Bears phone that she can create after Maycomb has safely picked her up in a jeep in the desert. Um, And yeah, she is doing fine. She will show up... um, Later on in the Hunt for Xavier storyline in a couple years, but for now, she's pretty much off the table. So Xavier and Thyssen are free working together. Nina and Maycomb are free, I don't know, watching a lot of Rainbow Bears. And it's really sweet. I really appreciate how, despite everything Xavier has been through and how much he hates himself right now, this little girl is able to just keep things simple by reminding him, like, hey, everybody screws up. But not everybody recognizes that what they did was bad and tries to make the world a better place afterward. Like, her straightforward innocence is exactly what he needs right here. Do you feel like lately they've been leaning a little too heavily into humanizing him through Charles Xavier befriends adorable Moppet under adverse circumstances? There has been a lot of that in the 90s, but, you know, I'm not going to be mad at it if it keeps working every time, and so far so good. And that is the end of Onslaught, or the end of the epilogue of Onslaught. We have covered all of Onslaught. Jay, we got through it before 2021 was over. Barely. You know, I'll take it. I feel great about this. What I also feel great about is the next era we're coming into, which I recognize is, once again, a controversial era, but it's one that I've barely read anything from, so we're going to get to read, like, a bunch of new-to-us X-Men. You know, that segues kind of directly into our first listener question. Rumbler Fumbler asks on Tumblr, I will never get sick of saying that. I want to be excited for your upcoming coverage of Operation Zero Tolerance, but to me it just feels like the most common X-Men storyline of bigots try to kill mutants. And I feel like better versions of that story have already been done. Am I missing something? What is supposed to separate Operation Zero Tolerance narratively from other stories in the history of the X-Men? Well... I kind of think of this entire era as a very slow countdown to the on-panel revelation that Cyclops owns a Captain America teddy bear. <laughs> um, which, which is a revelation we would not reach without the events of Operation Zero Tolerance. 
Um, no, seriously, I actually remember finding the Omega Sentinels pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. But, I don't know, we'll get to this much more. And admittedly, like I said, I'm not super familiar with Operation Zero Tolerance, but I've read some of it and I've read a lot about it. But it seems to be the first time the whole world was sort of after the X-Men. The first time the bigot seemed so close to actually taking down the team entirely. Like, the Extinction Agenda was similar in some ways, certainly. Lots of X-People were captured by the bad guys and such. But that was some, I'm not going to say random little country, but a small, specifically kind of evil country after our heroes. This is the X-Men's home nation's government, or at least a program that's fully sanctioned by them, being the aggressors, which really feels like something else entirely. It doesn't feel like they've been pulled into an unsafe place. It feels like now everywhere is an unsafe place, especially with the public so thoroughly turned against mutants after all the non-mutant heroes seem to die at the X-Men's hands. Of course, Days of Future Past was a more thorough anti-mutant takedown of the mutants, but that's a possible future. This is present-day canon. This is not hypothetical. This is not a hoax, not a dream, not an imaginary story. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, What is the single most convoluted yet wonderful plotline from X-Men that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh, oh, that's a delicious question. Now, my go-to, and I think your go-to probably, is always the Summers Kids, especially how they intersect from not one but two possible alternate futures. Oh, for me, it's the Summers family in general, because you got to look at the, the Summers family backstory and the time loop in that, too. Oh, yeah, the stuff from the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, right. Exactly. But if we're not doing that, I think my personal favorite is the long-shot Shatterstar thing. So, it was long rumored, basically from when Shatterstar first appeared, that Shatterstar was the child of Longshot and Dazzler. And in fact, Dazzler got pregnant around this time, but, but then Dazzler miscarried, so that theory was shot. But we later find out that adult Shatterstar, from the present day, stole the actually born just fine baby from Longshot and Dazzler, and then altered Longshot and Dazzler's memories to make them think there'd been a miscarriage? And at that point, Adult Shatterstar took Baby himself into the future of the Mojoverse to grow up. And after that, the now-adult, but younger than the other one who took him there, Shatterstar, was used as the basis by Arise, the Mojo World scientist, to create a semi-clone to lead the revolution against Mojo. And that clone was Longshot. So Longshot is Shatterstar's dad, and Shatterstar was the basis for Longshot being created. Is that a paradox? No. It is an awesome dox. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and those tiers of support, um, some of them come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The microphone today goes to, oh my, the microphone today goes to Sexy Val Cooper. Accountability. That is how we create order in this world, Daniel Garifi. After all you've done, justice and morality demand that you come with me to answer for your crimes. Hold out your hands as I roughly but carefully handcuff them together. Now don't move as I blindfold and gag you. And if, when, I'm forced to discipline you, you had better not wince. Your turn, Cameron Kane Chong. Did you think my department wouldn't notice your crimes? 
The world won't be safe until you're behind bars. Until then, this is your collar, and I'll be holding the end of your leash very carefully indeed. Don't stumble as we walk, or your punishment will be all the worse. Ah, yes, you seem to be a good listener. See that it stays that way. The safe word for both of you is pineapple. And call me Mistress Cooper. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, and if you have a moment, please rate and review us on your platform of choice. It really makes a difference. Next week, it's once again time for our giant size winter special, featuring the Daydreamers miniseries, the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence at Excellence, and special guest, Jonathan Hickman. Hickman.